Colleagues, welcome. Let's, let's get started. Um, thanks very much for coming along today to this, this seminar. It's and also doubling as a book launch. First of all, let me welcome and, and introduce uh, Ben Selwyn. Ben is a professor at the School for Global Studies here at the University of Sussex or across the street at the University of Sussex. And this is a launch of his new book, The Struggle for Development. Um, which he's going to tell us about, so I won't tell you much about this. But it, it, I'm really glad that this book has come out, and I'm really glad to have Ben here speaking at IDS, though you can also oftentimes find Ben down in the lunchroom if you want to talk to him further. Because I think his work covers an area that we don't do enough on at IDS, and I think in the field of development studies we don't do enough on, and that's the role of workers, worker organization, and labor. You know, 20 years, 30 years ago in development studies, that would have been a pre predominant theme. But somehow with deindustrialization and the change of the, the, the workers, you know, role of workers in the global economy, that field has gone down a little bit. If you're concerned about that area, you might also want to look at Ben's previous books. So in 2013, he did a book on workers, state, and development in Brazil. Um, that received a, a book prize from the International Political Economy Group. Uh, shortlisted. Shortlisted, okay. Um, you shouldn't corrected me. And in 2014, he did a more theoretical book on the global development crisis, which really addresses this paradox of massive accumulation of wealth in a few hands um, standing side by side with, with poverty. And he reviews a lot of the political theories of political economy to try to understand this huge contradiction of our times. Um, so Ben, welcome to you, and it's great again to have you here and launch this book and also to have a, a new book that's really fake looking at some of these issues about inequality and the role of workers within the broader development landscape. Thanks very much, John. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me to speak here and enable me to launch the book. Um, it's a very nice introduction by you, elevating me well above uh, my uh, uh, status, but that's fine. <laughs> um, <clears throat> thanks. Um, so, this book, uh, uh, I've got a copy of the book here, a hardback copy. If you have, actually have a look at it, uh, you'll see this is half sales pitch, half uh, a genuine kind of rationale behind the writing of the book. If you look at it, you'll see that it's, very, it's quite short, it's very accessible, the sentences are short, um, and it's designed to be read, unlike a lot of academic books which are designed to intimidate and to obfuscate and to kind of get marks in the research excellence framework by confusing their colleagues so much that their colleagues say, well, I don't know how to critique it, so I'll just give it a high mark. This is designed to be read. It's very clear, which means that you can take a lot from it and you can critique it very easily. You can identify what you like and don't like, uh, and that's what it's uh, designed for. That's why I wrote the book. Um, I've got a number of aims with this book. First of all is when we, people on the left, talk about development, uh, we talk about capitalism, we describe and we analyze better than anyone else, I think. When you're coming from a Marxist perspective like I am, we understand capitalism better than anyone else and we can say exactly why and what is wrong with it and why that, those problems won't go away. Um, but, and so that is in the book, but one of the problems we have on the left, on the Marxist left especially, is when it comes to the alternative. A lot of students want to know what can be done now, what is to be done now in terms of changing the world. Uh, and a lot of people on the left say, well, we need a transformation of the entire system. 
which is true, but that is actually quite a disempowering statement because it basically means, well, that's not going to happen today or tomorrow, therefore I can't really do much in that transformation. So the whole point about this book is to offer, uh, show how there are real processes of what I call labour-led development taking place in the here and now, which we can be positive about, and to offer a genuine alternative at the end of the book. Uh, the last chapter is basically a manifesto for an alternative form of development altogether. So it puts on the table a whole range of ideas about what alternatives are in the here and now as we speak and what they could be. And they're not designed to be a blueprint, certainly not the blueprint for a future uh, alternative society, but they are designed fundamentally for students to be able to read and debate and say, I agree with this, I disagree with this, but at least this person has put forward a plan for something different, which a lot of people on the left don't do because they find it quite difficult to do, and it is because it is difficult to do. So I've stuck my neck out there, and that's risky. Uh, secondly, there's another reason for writing this book. <clears throat> in academia, what we've had uh, in the 1960s and 1950s and 70s, as John alluded to, we had a very uh, creative set of theories discussing the nature of the, uh, the world. World systems theory, dependency, structuralism, Hans Singer was one of the founders of this uh, IDS. Uh, he was uh, very instrumental in building up the structuralist school. All of these theories contributed hugely. Those were knocked out by the neoliberal onslaught from the 1980s, um, and uh, we basically had a reduction to a kind of faith in the market, get prices right, and all else will follow in the 1980s. So everything was reduced to that. In the 1990s onwards, uh, most uh, people realised whether they were neoliberals themselves or all the way to the left, that actually neoliberalism wasn't working. And so there was a continual addition, new uh, academic uh, kind of uh, uh, disciplines were created, new areas, health, uh, security, governance, uh, and so on. And all of these are very interesting in their own right, but they don't add up to a total structural analysis of the capitalist structure as a whole. They don't have a systemic analysis. Uh, there is an adding up problem with all these new disciplines. So what I do in this book as well is I provide a systemic analysis of the problems of development under capitalism or capitalist development. Uh, and that's a challenge to a lot of academics who don't go as far enough to, to locate the problems that they describe within capitalism itself. A lot of the time capitalism is not spoken about. A lot of the time the market is assumed to be this a sphere of potential. And thirdly, I'm aiming also for this book to have some, hopefully some impact on uh, labouring uh, class movements, so-called social movements, who are uh, really struggling for development, really attaining development, but often couch their own uh, struggles in terms of quite sectional terms. We're struggling for uh, this or that demand. Whereas what I'm saying is actually their struggles are uh, bigger and better than what the state and what firms are doing. The states and firms have monopolised the idea of development. I'm trying to say these labouring class struggles, these struggles by social movements, are as developmental and potentially more progressive and more radical than the forms of development that are coming from above. Um, I also want to um, say that this book uh, is, was... When I put the book proposal in to Polity, because when you write a book, you have to put a proposal in, and you have to jump through all these hoops, you have to say why now, uh, who's your audience, and so on. I mentioned in the book proposal... The rise of Jeremy Corbyn, the rise of Bernie Sanders, uh, Syriza, okay, they've compromised and they're implementing austerity, but you've also got Podemos, D-Link in Germany is doing quite well. You have a resurgence of the socialist left in the global north and in the global south. Uh, I mentioned uh, the uh, 
various trade unions and uh, radical organizations in South Africa as well, uh, NUMSA, for example. And I said, this book is uh, designed to fit into this uh, growing upsurge of a rejection of neoliberalism and the beginnings of a genuine anti-capitalist kind of attempt to think about the world. So this is aiming to uh, fit in there. Uh, so it's basically providing a socialist, left-wing, Marxist conception of development. But, crucially, I recognised, and I spend quite a lot of the time in the book, critiquing various forms of Marxism as well. Because Marxism has not always had the answers, and there's a lot of variants of Marxism that are actually very reactionary. And I spend quite a lot of time critiquing them, and I'll go into that a little bit in the, um, in the presentation. And the last thing I'll say before we go into the presentation proper is... In my previous book, I, implement, I, I introduced the concept of labour-centred development. So, you know, Donald Trump says America first, businesses say business first, most development thinking says capital accumulation first. I'm saying labour first. I'm saying if you put labour first, if you put class relations first and then look at development through these relations, you see very different processes and you are forced to look at development in very different ways. So that's how I... Um, and then I develop that in this book more. So in this lecture, I want to do the following. Provide a critique with what's wrong with the world. Um, provide a, uh, a brief exposition of what a labour-centred approach to understanding development can let us know about the contemporary world system. I talk about different forms of uh, pro-labour to labour-led development. Um, I'll also critique a little bit Marxism. Then I'll talk about the movements that are generating the kind of developmental gains that I think are very important. And I'll talk about the alternatives as well. Um, so... Let me start here. This is the epigraph, the, the second, first page of the book. Uh, the great are only great because we are on our knees. Let us rise up. Now, anyone on the left will recognize the second part of this sentence, let us rise up, is the standard leftist kind of solution. Uh, and I subscribe to that. But the first part is actually much more interesting. The, the great are only great because we are on our knees signifies something that uh, a lot of the development theories that we encounter... Uh, they say they're about the empowerment of the poor, but they are actually predicated upon the poor staying on their knees, staying in a subordinate position, letting these mediocrities uh, boss them around. It's like I was watching uh, with my daughter, my little uh, three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, I was watching the Tom and Jerry version of The Wizard of Oz, and I realised actually a lot of development theories replicate The Wizard of Oz in the sense that they proclaim these grandiose uh, potentials for humanity, but they, are, uh, and, but they are based upon this idea that... Uh, of demobilization and the grandioseness of development comes about by the main characters, the, the poor, the laboring classes, actually being demobilized. So in The Wizard of Oz, you have the Dorothy and her friends trying to find the wizard. They think the wizard is this great man, this great, powerful thing. And he's actually this little insecure person behind a curtain blowing off steam and stuff like that. And they, they are demobilized. They can't find their courage. They can't find their... Um, strengthen their heart because they believe that he is so great. The minute you start, stop believing that they're great, the minute you start getting off your knees and liberating yourself, suddenly a whole range of new theories emerge and are forced to emerge through that process of rising up. The process of rising up itself is a process of development. Okay, so let me just give you some background. So this is the uh, uh, table of contents. The, big the first two chapters... Uh, really attack this idea of uh, poverty reduction under globalisation. I mean, when you read The Economist and any other uh, journal on the subject, they say, all, all of you people on the left, all those people who are a bit 
unsure about globalization, uh, shut up, because uh, globalization is reducing poverty. Well, I spend quite a lot of time going into that and say, yes, you can say that because your measure of poverty, the $1 a day, $1.90 a day poverty line, is useless. It does not measure poverty. It doesn't tell you. If someone's consuming the equivalent of $1.90 a day, and your conception, they are not poor, or $1.91, they're not poor, or they're not extreme poor, doesn't mean they can actually live on that. I mean, even people in the World Bank uh, are talking about $5 a day poverty line, $10 a day poverty line. Um, and when they're talking about $10 a day, it was 10 times higher than the $1 a day poverty line. In other words, even people within the World Bank don't agree with this $1 a day poverty line. And when you have a slightly higher and more realistic poverty line, you see that the majority of the world's population live in poverty. Moreover, as I start the book saying, Capitalism is this extremely dynamic system which has created massive amounts of wealth. Throughout the crisis since 2008, global wealth has accumulated and continued to grow and expand, and yet we cannot solve the basic problems of poverty, inequality, malnutrition, etc. And those problems are in, uh, intrinsically related. Massive poverty on the one hand, massive wealth on the other. They are two sides of the same coin of capitalist development. In the third chapter, I invert the idea. Now, you're all very familiar because this place, IDS, has been at the forefront pushing the value chains concept, and it's very useful, a global value chains perspective. I mean, the global value chains perspective destroys completely any remaining myth in the idea of the free market. The global value chain shows very clearly giant corporations control, manage, govern the world economy, set prices. Decisions in a boardroom in London have direct developmental impacts across the world. There's no free market. Uh, not only is there no free market now, it has never existed and cannot exist. Uh, it's a myth. Uh, but what I do, so I mean, I appreciate the value chain perspective, but I should say the value chain perspective has spent so long looking at upgrading. They have this, this image of the ladder. The ladder is good. You move up the ladder. There's no problem with the ladder. They never say break down the ladder. They, know, they say link up with global corporations. They never say break down the corporations. Let's disempower the global global corporations in order to achieve development. That's not even on the agenda of mainstream value chain analysis. I say, look, these value chains are actually part and parcel and creating new forms of poverty. And I give lots of examples of workers employed in global value chains being paid well below their, their subsistence costs. In other words, in Marxist uh, terminology, they're being super exploited. They, they do not even earn with the basic hours the, the necessary wage. And then the last four, three chapters are the kind of the build-up to the alternative, um, hence the slightly similar titles. Deepening exploitation. I look at the ideas of capital-centered development. I critique, critique the neoliberal ideas. I critique the uh, statist ideas and lots of Marxist ideas. A lot of these theories talk about the potential for development coming from above. They talk about the emancipation of uh, the poor, but they're all based on labor repression, labor exploitation. For example, uh, Friedrich Hayek celebrated, Friedrich Hayek advised Thatcher, author of The Road to Serfdom, major theorist in the revival of neoliberalism in the 1970s and 1980s. He celebrated the uh, coup against Allende. He says, I have not been able to find one person who believes that personal freedoms are not greater under Pinochet than they had been under Allende. The coup against Allende, the mass murder of uh, big chunks of the population was celebrated by him because it created more freedom. And I've got the quote there and various other quotes. So the neoliberals obviously have not got a solution. They live in this mythical world of the market they impose upon us. I mean, uh, Liam Fox uh, writes about that and you can read his column in The Guardian from a few months ago. It's just pure mythology. But then the alternatives are the people that we are told 
when we study development, the alternative is the statists especially. They are the guys that we should respect and see as the great alternative. They provide a brilliant critique of neoliberalism. But the statists, going back to Alexander Hamilton, Friedrich List, the statists in the 1950s, people like Hirschman, Gershenkron, brilliant thinkers. Uh, and today's world, we've got people like Hajun Chang, Robert Wade, Alice Amston, Atul Kohli, really leading the way in uh, state-led thinking. They critique neoliberalism, they provide an idea that the state should intervene and manage the economy, and then they all recognise that in order to achieve this labour exploitation, labour repression is necessary. Some of them even go as far as advocating it. And I should say, those people who advocate labour repression as part of the development solution are not providing a solution at all. They are as reactionary as the uh, neoliberals in many ways. In fact, uh, Pinochet obviously is bad. But so was the Park regime in South Korea. In fact, they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, very repressive, uh, sending uh, trade unionists to concentration camps. Um, uh, huge labor repression and exploitation. Recognized, in some cases, celebrated by the statists. I also critique a whole range of Marxist theories of development. Um, because there is this terrible tradition in Marxism, going back especially to Stalin, in, of the idea of stages. First we need to have full capitalist development, then we can have socialist development. But only, but because we don't have full capitalist development now, our tasks are not to build socialist development, but to build more capitalist development. Many people think that these sets of ideas died in 1991 with the death of the Soviet Union. Not at all. In Bolivia, the vice president, uh, Linera Garcia, Garcia, Garcia Linera, argues, he says, I'm a socialist. I want socialism in the Andes. But first we need to have 50 or 100 years of capitalist development before we can have socialism. And he uses these stages ideas to advocate and uh, uh, preside over labor repression, pushing wages down, and informalization uh, in the uh, mainstream, in the, in the labor market. Uh, and I critique Marxism for much else. Then in chapter five, resisting exploitation, I give a whole range of examples and a theory of laboring class movements who through resisting these forms of exploitation actually create their own developmental gains, which I'll go into more later in this lecture. And finally, uh, chapter six, I'll talk about democratic development, the alternative. I, I'll list, I have a 10 point plan and I've got a theory of democratic development. The reason I call it democratic development is because status development and market-led development are profoundly undemocratic. The whole point about resource allocation, resource generation, resource consumption, all of that is off limits to any kind of democratic control. Even when you do have democracy, it's a misrepresentative form of democracy. You elect someone and they misrepresent you. And I'm saying we need to consider a much more expanded conception of democracy. So when we talk, talk about capital-centered development, which is state-led, market-led, and various combinations of them, basically capital-centered development is predicated on the following four aspects. Capital accumulation is the basis for the development of the poor. The elites are the drivers of capital accumulation, states, markets, corporations, uh, uh, NGOs perhaps, uh, struggles by the poor to ameliorate their conditions are not only ignored in this theory, but are delegitimized in the theory. And this uh, delegitimization of the poor struggles because they get in the way of state-led development. I and mean, when you read the statist uh, theory, they say we need to have autonomous or relative autonomy of the state. And that means ensuring that labor doesn't influence our um, resource allocation policies. So in these situations, uh, struggles of the poor are disregarded, which actually le legitimates the elite repression and exploitation of the poor.
And this uh, is uh, encapsulated very much by the uh, benefits of uh, the liberal view of the benefits of globalization. Uh, we think we are dominated uh, by uh, ideas that globalization should be celebrated because it's, uh, it leads to the uh, reduction of poverty. Uh, again and again we hear that. It's like endless uh, kind of ideological projection. Um, and it's based on Smith's idea, Adam Smith's idea of the expansion of the market and specialization and Ricardo's idea of comparative advantage. So each country specializes in what they do best. Total world output increases. Each country trades the surpluses that they produce and buys what they need. Uh, this specialization cheapens goods, which in turn better, betters living standards. And globalization equals the expansion of the world market with benign effects. The world market is seen as and portrayed as benign. And to some extent, this is true. There are tr certain elements of truth here. This expansion of the market, expan that expansion of the division of labor, has, under the cont contemporary period of globalization, led to a very much cheapening of a whole range of goods. I remember being in Canada a few years ago. I bought five T-shirts for 10 Canadian dollars, which was about six pounds. So that's something like one pound 20 a T-shirt. 10, 15 years ago, that would have been impossible to do. How has that happened? How is it that you can buy these laptops and iPhones and all this mega high technology, it's amazing stuff, so cheaply, relatively cheaply? Well, uh, one of the ways you can do that is by super exploiting labor in China, uh, India, and elsewhere, keeping workers' pay so low that they don't really contribute anything to the overall cost or price or value of the, or, sorry, cost or price of the actual finished good. And uh, a lot of people in this country, perhaps more nationalist, nationally minded, may say, those who believe in Britain, Britain first or America first, would say, well, I don't really care about those people uh, across the rest of the world. What I care about is my consumption level. If I can buy stuff cheaply, that's all I care about. I don't care about anything else. Uh, so this is good. Globalization is good. It maybe it appeals to those nationally minded, nationalist minded people. But in reality, what's happened over the last 20 years is a whole range of goods have fallen in price. And these, fallen, these uh, collapses in prices have not fed into greater living standards for the majority, but have actually led to also uh, pushing down wage costs. Because I mean, one of the great things that uh, was learnt by capitalist classes uh, a long time ago was if you reduce the cost, the basic wage goods costs, then you can push wages down. And that's what's happened. So wages have been stagnating in the US and the UK and being pushed down. And uh, you can see that that's been replaced by debt. But the point is that this uh, expansion of the division of labor and the creation of a super exploited workforce in parts of uh, Asia especially, but also Africa and Latin America, has also led to pushing down the wages here and the emergence of super exploitation uh, in this country as well. I mean, there are many cases in this country of workers getting paid well below their subsistence requirements. And these are interlinked and I show that in the uh, book. And this is epitomized by Jeffrey Sachs, the good guy. Uh, the saviour, the person who's really against poverty, the person who designed and helped implement the uh, Russian Structural Adjustment Plan after 1991 and the Bolivian Structural Adjustment Plan, who, which plunged millions into poverty, uh, premature death on a massive scale. Of course, he defends it, and he defends this globalisation. He says, you guys should not be protesting against the proliferation of the sweatshops. On the contrary, you should be celebrating them because they are the first rung on the ladder out of extreme poverty. And he can say that consistently because it is true when you use the dollar a day purchasing line, purchasing power parity analysis, it is the first rung of the ladder because these workers get paid more and they consume more than uh, the PPP 
poverty line level. But the reality is, when you actually look at their real living conditions, their li real living requirements, these sweatshops are, represent the proliferation of poverty. I've got lots of data in the book about how, uh, in a place like Bangladesh, obviously, but across Asia, even in Eastern Europe, where we don't normally think of it, that you have workers being paid uh, one quarter, one third, one fifth even, of their actually required uh, living requirements for their wage. So they're being super exploited massively. So these are not the beginning of the end of poverty, they're actually creation of new forms of poverty uh, under capitalism. And they are uh, very powerfully created, celebrated. And you know, the uh, IMF and World Bank and even the EU has been playing a role in keeping these wages down in places like Eastern Europe. Okay, so what can a labour-centred perspective offer that the uh, pro-globalisation, pro-capital perspective doesn't offer? The market, in their perspective, is seen as this pristine, benign sphere of exchange. Production relations are rarely included in the analysis of the market. They are somehow the black box of production, the hidden abode, as Marx called it, that no one ever talks about. But in reality, the expansion of globalisation of the th last 30 years has been built upon a massive expansion of the global labouring class from over 1 billion in 1980 to well over 3 billion uh, today. And that labouring class, contrary to all these theories about the disappearance of the working class, has expanded and it's been based on a whole range of uh, processes. I mean, popular theories of the uh, doubling the global labour pool put it down to the incorporation of China and Russia and India into the global system post-1991. And that's got something to do with it, but it's also got to do with depeasantisation, increased entry of women into the formal labour market, increased unemployment, precarious employment, and the super-exploitation of labour. I mean, in Brazil, for example, following the 1964 coup by the military, they launched a conservative modernisation programme in agriculture to... Uh, basically turn agriculture into a high-tech, high-capital-intensive, uh, highly productive system, which they did do. In the process of doing that, 30 million people are forced off the land into the favelas. Uh, and this has taken place across much of the world. So this depeasantization is as important as the incorporation of China and Russia into the world market. The consequences of this globalization and the way that global value chains work, the, the power of the uh, transnational corporations to determine uh, their ability to source goods at very, very low cost is based upon the immiseration of and the expansion of the global labouring force. To the extent that the ILO recognises that one in three workers live under $2 a day, and the ILO, of course, is using the very conservative World Bank figures of poverty. So a higher poverty line means that you have the majority of this uh, labouring class living in one form of poverty or another. So that is the, that's the critique in a way. Uh, and now we all know about the critique. And uh, one of the things that I don't want to do is to just have critique. I mean, there's this great little cartoon I always think about, which is these little, little kids, uh, little fatty-faced kids, like five-year-olds. They're supposed to be you guys, but they're kind of enthusiastic. Uh, going into the... Uh, sociology lecture theatre, to have the first sociology lecture, all smiling, all happy. Uh, one of them falls asleep, uh, all of them, the rest stay awake, and then you see them coming out. All of those who have stayed awake are really depressed because they've just been told how awful the world was, and the one who's fallen asleep is actually really happy because uh, he's had nice dreams about stuff. Uh, what I don't want to do is just reproduce the misery of um, uh, the sort of pessimistic intellectual uh, ways of thinking, which we are very good at doing. I want to actually have the uh, optimism of the will, as Gramsci uh, um, uh, put it, uh, create an optimistic situation. And so then I start, I, 
implementing my labour-centred approach. So labour-centred development basically means thinking about development with labour at front at the, at the beginning, putting class relations at the front, thinking from a labour-centred perspective. But when in terms of actual policy, labour-centred policy doesn't really tell you that much about policy. But the, in terms of policy and practice and strategy, this is where I break it down some more. So you've got pro-labour development, which is great. Basically, it's progressive policies implemented from above to uh, facilitate and make uh, workers' lives better. Uh, if Corbyn got into government tomorrow, he would implement a lot of pro-labour policies, and I'd support that. I'm definitely for more Corbyns and less Theresa Mays in the world. Absolutely. Uh, but that is where a lot of critical left-wing thinking, development thinking, and critical thinking stops. It stops at the idea that we, the elites, can do, we should be doing better for the poor. Uh, but I actually go a bit further. So there's, you've also got this category of labour-driven development, which is where the, the mass movements from below push the elites to implement progressive policies. In this country, in 1943, I think it was, uh, Lord Hailsham, who is this major figure in the Tory party, thinking, reflecting the interests of his party and sections of his class, the ruling class in the UK, and thinking back to the end of the First World War, where revolution seemed to spread across the world, he said, either we give them the masses social reform, or they will give us revolution. Because the fear of revolt from below is so strong, that's what pushed the implementation of a very progressive welfare state in this country, across Europe, the New Deal in the United States. So, and these can be understood as uh, results from pressures from below. But then I go even one step further and talk about labour-led development, which is a description and analysis of where workers' collective actions aim to generate and succeed in generating real gains for themselves and their communities. Uh, and this is where we enter the realm of much more radical social theory, because most social theory doesn't go there at all. It discounts uh, the agency of labouring classes almost completely. But I'm saying labour-led development is real. It exists. It's not some utopian thing for the future exist existing here and now. And we can support it in many ways. So, that's, I, I, I start there. But I ha you have to recognise that, and I base my analysis in Marxism, but I understand completely, and it's very important to critique swathes of Marxism that have failed uh, to really understand the world and have led to bad policy and bad kind of politics. So what you've had, a lot of Marxism is what you can call productivist Marxism, which talks about class relations and exploitation of labour by capital, which is correct, um, but it situates that exploitation entirely within the realm of work, entirely once the work contract has been signed in the factories. They usually conjure up this image of the Fordist, big mass production of factories, male workers, usually white, in Europe. This kind of Fordist idea of productivist. This, this, so this is why some of them are now saying... Uh, you know, labouring class is disappearing. So productivist Marxism sees exploitation as existing within the workplace. And I've drawn a lot on uh, repro um, uh, uh, social reproduction Marxism and feminism, which makes the brilliant critique of this productivist Marxism that, yes, that exists there, but what about the reproductive sphere? You know, some Marxists, when they talk about the reproductive sphere, the family and the community, they call it the unproductive sphere, which is a very insulting and completely wrong way of thinking about it. It's not an unproductive sphere. You're actually producing something that's the predicate 
upon which you can have the exploitation of labour. They're producing the labour which then gets exploited. In a sense, it's more important or as important as the productive sphere. As I say, these two spheres are co-constitutive. They exist. Uh, and what you understand from there is that the, the, the circuits of capitalist reproduction are not just predicated upon the exploitation in the workplace, but upon the reproduction of a labour force, of a labour force free from any control over the means of production and free to be sold and exploited in the workplace. So that reproductive aspect means I have a broader conception of class relations which then broadens out the idea of uh, what constitutes labouring classes and what kind of actions labouring classes engage in and what kind of developmental outcomes uh, emerge from that. So here is just a uh, aspect. You've got the circuit of production where surplus value is produced by workers and appropriated by capitalists. That's what productivist Marxists focus on. But then you've also got the circuit of reproduction and labour power, which is a generation of a labour force. These, are, these two circuits are distinct, but mutually constitutive. You can't have one without the other. In, in, in fact, the history of the emergence of capitalism is not just the emergence of the uh, proletarian wage labour, the freeing the, the peasantry from the land, which Marx details in Volume 1 of Capital in the section on primitive accumulation. It's also the creation of this uh, reproductive sphere, this unpaid reproductive sphere, which is so important. And consequently, the global labouring class looks very different to what a productivist Marxist conception of it would have us believe. A productive conception simply sees labouring classes existing at the point of production uh, in large factories, for, uh, usually. But as uh, Leo Panitch and Colin Lees put it, the growing number, the global labouring class represents the growing numbers who now depend directly and indirectly on the sale of the labour power for their own daily reproduction. The indirectly bit is absolutely important. Indirectly represents those who depend on, the wage lab, on, on wages, but don't do the work to get those wages, i.e. mostly women in the home. But at the same time, they are the ones that contribute this huge amount of free labor, this huge subsidy to capital that enables the free wage laborer to go and get paid a wage. So uh, that is extremely important uh, observation. And con once you understand that, then your conception of what the labouring class is expands massively. Unpaid women workers, largely responsible for social reproduction in the household, urban industrial employed workers, urban and rural employed workers, informal workers that populate the over-expanding urban slumlands, many members of the peasantry and many, many members of the so-called emerging developing world middle class. So the, the global labouring class is massively diverse, Consequently, because of its diversity, the struggles are going to be different in different places. Uh, the aims that they're aiming to uh, achieve, the ameliorations that they're aiming for are going to be different, and the outcomes are going to be different. So there's a whole amount of diversity there. But being a Marxist, uh, it's, it is also possible to understand the unity in that diversity. What is united there is the separation from the means of production and the need in some way or another to work through or... Uh, connected to the labour market to reproduce the daily existence. Okay, so now we get to the question of uh, where we think about alternatives. A lot of students, uh, when they listen to this, they get disempowered because they say, your alternative is all nice, I wish we could have it. If I could snap my fingers, I would go there now. Uh, most people would, this brilliant alternative future. But the reality is we're not there and it's very difficult for us to get there. So what do we do? And what usually happens is they say, well, we should support progressive NGOs, progressive states as they implement uh, potentially uh, pro-labor policies. And I'm all for that. But there's a lot more that can be done as well. Intellectually and politically, we can understand that these struggles, for example, uh, Cambodian garment workers, uh, Chinese workers, 
striking. Uh, over a 10-year period, Chinese industrial workers have contributed to pushing the wages up threefold, tripling their wages over a 10-year period. Uh, this is a major uh, uh, kind of victory in terms of labouring class solidarity and collective action. And we can understand that. We can incorporate in that into our politics and our intellectual understanding of the development process. Uh, the, the landless labourers movement in Brazil, the MST. Uh, there's also a homeless workers movement in Brazil. These are the collateral damage of the... These people represent the collateral damage of the conservative modernisation period. Like you remember... From 64 onwards, there's this huge uh, attempt to build up agriculture in Brazil, capitalise it, and so on. 30 million people are swept off the land. They were deemed expendable. Um, but they didn't just sit there and wait for someone else to decide their fate. They took their history into their own hands, they took their fate into their own hands and started having a reverse agrarian reform, taking over land, invading land, uh, breaking capitalist property rights, establishing their new uh, agrarian collectives, uh, producing food, marketing their food, uh, making links with progressive academics, having new education systems, and so on. In the urban centre, the urban homeless workers' movement has been taking over uh, houses, uh, one of the most basic essentials of human uh, uh, social reproduction. Uh, and so these are very progressive indeed. And uh, finally... In Argentina, you've had this uh, movement to occupy factories following the massive crash of the early 2000s. And what is interesting about these factories is one of the critiques of my kind of position by the statist and then by the market, pro-market people is, yes, you know, we, we kind of morally sympathise with you, but in reality, those workers are not skilled enough. They don't have the capacity to do what we do on the shop floor in terms of industrial planning. They're... Uh, control of the workplace would actually lead to falling productivity and all kinds of stuff. Well, I actually provide data. They in have engaged in pushing productivity up, raising productivity in these factories. So they can do what the capitalists want to do better because they're not subject to vicious capitalist management, which oftentimes is about demobilising uh, Labour's initiative as a means of controlling Labour. I can go into that more if you want. Harry Braverman wrote all about that a long time ago. So not only that, they pushed up Productivity. They've engaged in all kinds of progressive um, uh, democratic uh, experiments and uh, connections with the community and so on. Okay, so in terms of the alternative, this is the last chapter, democratic development. And this is how I start the chapter. In the near future, a labouring class movement conquers political and economic power in a relatively poor country through a combination of parliamentary elections and extra-parliamentary mass movements. The following is a brief... Uh, is a draft discussion chapter prepared on behalf of the emergent political parties within the new state. It is designed to contribute to debates about the kind of development strategies, practices and policies that such a movement and state could undertake. And I will put it on the table right now, and I mention this in the book, that there is a big tension and, and many um, potential contradictions emerging from thinking about the future using today's con intellectual concepts. Building the future using yesterday and today's tools. That is very difficult, and that's going to create all kinds of problems, and I recognise that, and I theorise that uh, in the book. Nevertheless, uh, you can't let difficulties stop you thinking about what the alternative could be. 
uh, I talk about how the state needs to be reabsorbed by society. Marx talked about this in terms of the Paris Commune. At the moment, the state stands above us, dominates us. It has mediocrities like Theresa May and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump ruling over us. If they walked up, um, around, among us now, they'd all be failing their exams in development studies. They'd fail every single exam they'd take. They'd be sent off to, so, to, to, to the student help uh, station and say, well, we can help you construct a proper sentence, don't worry. But no, they stand up there as these powerful people because the capitalist state dominates us. We need to reabsorb the state through decentralization, through democratic communes, uh, through neighborhoods that actually decide upon what, how the neighborhood should be run. Uh, all of these things can be done and have been done to an extent already. And I also say that to achieve an elimination of poverty is absolutely possible now. We can do it in one year, you can eliminate poverty across the world by distributing wealth. So you know the uh, MDGs and the SDGs and all the people that proclaim them and say how concerned we are about alleviating poverty. They don't actually care about poverty, uh, really. If they really cared about poverty, they would say, let's redistribute wealth and income and social wealth to the poor uh, and eliminate poverty tomorrow. Because it's absolutely possible. So I've just got this, I've got quite a few examples. Here's one. Using numbers which approximate those in Bangladesh, a redistribution of 3% from the top quintile to the bottom quintile results in a reduction of extreme poverty to zero. If you want to do the same thing through growth, you need a 45% uh, increase um, in growth, which would take years, and it would have terrible environmental consequences, and it'd be built on the further immiseration of the poor. So redistribution can work. Even the poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa are net uh, creditors to the world systems as to, to the banks especially, as the Paradise Papers show. Huge capital outflows, that has to be democratically controlled. Uh, the democratic development strategies, things like a universal distribution through uh, UBI. Uh, everyone's talking about this. Guy Standing gave a great talk here last year. Um, but I would say it's not just unconditional, it's conditional. Um, as I mentioned previously, uh, capitalism is based upon this kind of division of genders uh, and the kind of subordination of women in general in, in capitalist society. And one of the things that a basic uh, UBI could do would be to say, you're all welcome to the UBI. Uh, those of you who don't engage in reproductive labor, that is bringing up the next generation, that is kind of the, the work that women do in the household, if you want the UBI, then you have to do summer hours a week of that kind of labor. So basically what you do is you public, publicize rather than privatize uh, the reproductive labor. You bring it out into the open. You let people know that it's very important and uh, you share it out, which has an emancipatory effect in many ways. Uh, I have a whole range of policies. I've got a 10-point plan, which I can go into more in the Q&A, about how to achieve uh, um, not just redistribution, but a reorientation of resource generation and distribution and production in ways that would actually uh, alleviate poverty and lead to a good society. And there's a lot of great ideas which I've drawn on uh, many people. This idea about the conditional UBI is drawn from Diane Elson, who used to be here. Um, a lot of these ideas are drawn from very progressive people. A lot of these ideas are drawn from current experiences. So for example, for gender equality and against nationalism and racism, I look at the Rajovan Kurds and their constitution, their attempts to break down uh, nationalism, racism, gender discrimination in their constitution, in their operations. So I, I, I don't use utopian tools to create a utopian society. I use the tools of today to create a utopian society. We need to think about utopias. Uh, but I, and I use that 
I do that by drawing on the tools developed by people who have been engaged in development, especially in the global south, especially the social movements themselves. So I try and re remain organically linked. So the final, uh, okay, the last but one uh, slide, uh, all kinds of things can be um, uh, done. Uh, you know, I talk about sectoral articulation between industry and agriculture. That is a classic statist uh, manoeuvre to boost both agricultural and industrial capacity. But it can be done in a way that doesn't lead to the exploitation of labour, but actually leads to the alleviation of labour's exploitation and leads to uh, uh, the alleviation of pressures in the rural sector. I can go into that more. So finally, just to finish, the epigraph again. The great are only great because we are on our knees. Let us rise up. The process of rising up is the process of ending alienation, of battling exploitation, of throwing off the ghosts and the tyrannies of uh, our intellect, which make us bow down to so-called superior theorists and political structures. It's about taking life into our own hands and not letting people push us around. This process of rising up is not the precursor of real human development. It is the process of real human development and it can take many forms and it can go on for a long time. But that's what we should be thinking about when we think about development because uh, a lot of development studies is quite conservative and it is predicated upon us not rising up and us not even thinking about the possibility of rising up. So that's why I say let us rise up as a process of real human development. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Ben, for a really incredible sort of tour de force through radical social thought over the last three or four decades, as well as ending with some very concrete examples of the way forward. I look forward to the day when the Human Development Index measures the numbers of rising up movements around the world uh, as an example of human development. That would be, <clears throat> that would be great. Um, you've given us a lot to think about. We've got uh, about 10 minutes, and then people who need to leave it too can do so, but I assume you can stay around for a bit longer to continue the discussion. So let's open it up. Questions, comments? Are you happy to take two or three at a time? Absolutely, yeah. Great. Ian. Okay, fantastic. Um, I should mention, I think this is going on, this is being live cast, right? Yeah. Okay. I won't say anything different if it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I wonder whether you have any perspectives on other challenges to capitalism and not only do we see these progressive moves that you described so well, but also one could, could speculate that the response of right-wing authoritarian populist movements are rising up in the context of the collapse of neoliberalism in various ways, with challenges to globalization, with pro-worker moves, but in a very regressive uh, setting which doesn't respond to your 10 scale creation of alternatives as precursors for a new kind of development and in many places those have grown to be quite large examples rather than small examples. So what extent do you see them as a as a positive way forward? And let's take one more back right here. 
Thank you. Uh, thanks, Ben. That was great. I like almost all of your development strategies. But I was wondering, you talked about reabsorbing the state. So you said you position your, um, your argument against a lot of statist theories. Now, my question, I guess, is can we really save the state in here? So what can you really implement these strategies and have a true labor-led development under an institution which is itself based on the centralization of power, coercion, social and ecological exploitation? Like, how do you do this reabsorbing? Okay, well, uh, John's, the great thing about doing book launches is you get lots of questions that you can't answer, and you think, I will answer them next time in my next book. So uh, that, that uh, deals with John's question. I don't deal at all with the solidarity economy, and I should do, and I aim to uh, in the future. So thanks for mentioning that. Uh, that's, uh, that's something to actually look at and do real research with and see what kind of collaborations there are, uh, what aims for expanding it, deepening it, radicalizing it there are. So I definitely uh, aim to do that. Um, maybe we can talk about that some more. Mm. <clears throat> In terms of Ian's question about the uh, reactionary neo-populist movements, which is a subject of a forthcoming special edition of JPS. Coming up. Coming up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no self-promotion there. No. <laughs> no, that's a very important point. And obviously I can't answer the whole question, but a lot of these uh, movements come out of despair and uh, a resignation that the left doesn't have the answer. And a lot of the time, that is because the left has not had the answer, even though it's had the critique. Uh, so the left has a critique, which is often good, and then its answer is to have more of the same, but a little bit more sugar-coated, as in more top-down, elite-led, exploitation-driven, environmentally uh, destructive kinds of policies, um, which really keeps demobilizing those who are looking to the left for hope and mobilization. And when those strategies don't work, uh, the door is open to the right. Uh, and it's a terrible, I mean, one of the reasons for writing this book is you get uh, in a lot of uh, institutions when they're teaching development studies, you get this brilliant kind of vision of what's wrong with the world. And then and you think, well, these people are definitely kind of radicals. And then you say, what's the solution? And their solution is more top-down kind of nice things, but done within the same structure. And it's that structure that is the problem itself, the capitalist structure. So part of the answer to those ways of stopping those reactionary movements is to have a good politics. Uh, and part of having good politics is to stop thinking about these ladders of opportunities, the market is a benign sphere, and so on. And that's a a job that we can all play in our, in our intellectual work and political work. I mean, I'm very glad to say that for a long time I was uh, not apolitical, but not active. And then, uh, you know, I joined the Labour Party just after Theresa May called the election because I thought, Corbyn's going to get destroyed and I want to be in there to help defend him when the right wing of the Labour Party uh, attempts to get rid of him. But we actually campaigned a lot in... Um, uh, uh, Kemptan, and we actually did a great job in getting the Labour Party uh, MP elected, and a lot of people have done that. So you can become re-politicised in many ways. I mean, that's just one way, and I'm not saying the Labour Party and parliamentary politics is the main or most important thing, but we can be politically active as well as intellectually active and try and connect the two together. So I think that's part of the answer to responding to the reactionary movements. And in terms of Andrea's question, can we save the state? How do we reabsorb the state? I mean. So, 
having direct democracy, you know, electing and deselecting uh, state officials, paying the state officials the same that we get paid, uh, having a rotation, um, you know, having a situation where we can all become state officials in the sense that we all understand how to do things, having this. Uh, spreading knowledge and having spreading capacity through democratic participation is the essential way of uh, um, absorbing the state in a sense because you know we have this we live in a world of division between the mental and the manual the mind and the body the mind is superior to the body the state is superior to society it directs society it keeps it safe but actually once the body us we start absorbing the knowledge of the state then there's no reason for that state to be superior um, Obviously, there will still be some kinds of hierarchies and some kind of uh, centralized power. But at the same time, one of the parts of my 10-point plan and part of this idea of the reabsorption of the state is to really decentralize power as much as possible. And the idea of participatory uh, economics and democratic uh, kind of radical democracy is that everything that can be done at the local level should be done and should be encouraged to be done at the local level. What we've had at the moment is a complete centralization of state power so that lo localities have been denuded of their kind of, I mean, in neoliberal language, human capital. People have been downgraded to really kind of low uh, abilities to reproduce themselves. Uh, what we can do is to think about ways in which we can have decentralized power, uh, which in, is a, the process of decentralization is a process of empowering, and once that decentralization is uh, in motion, uh, it enables us to think in new ways. So, I mean, it's a big question. I don't believe in a stateless world. I can't see how it would exist, especially when you have democratic development in one country. But um, I can certainly believe and see the potential for a radically different state which is democratically controlled and actually subordinate to society rather than the other way around. Great, let's get some of the questions here. We've got Alyssa and Pete and Lydia. Thanks, Ben, fantastic. Two slightly linked questions. I really like your opening up of the notion of the laboring class to include those who are unemployed and those who are doing care work, whether it's for ecology or families and, and so on. But I'd really like your comment on actually the way contemporary capitalism is moving, um, both towards multiplying the number of people who are not in a conventional working class category, through th either because they're unemployed or because they're working in these very precarious gig economy, I and mean, technology has a lot, a lot to do with this. The factory jobs are going, they're being replaced by digital technologies and, and so on. So we've got an expanded number of people who are in those categories. I'd like your comment on how solidarities form, because it's very different. Some of the examples you gave were people rising up in a factory or rising up because they have a united position vis-a-vis -vis land dispossession. But creating solidarities amongst highly individualized, fragmented non-workers is more challenging. So how does this come into your 10-point plan? And the related question, is any of this about trans-local solidarities? You've talked a lot about, about taking to the local and reabsorbing national states into their localities. But is there also a role for solidarities which are created amongst people in different places who might actually be pursuing quite disparate projects? Yeah, thanks a lot. Also, uh, plenty to agree with here, Ben. Um, one question I wanted to ask, though, was around 
how far you're essentially talking here in this project and with the manifesto about redistribution of the gains from industrialism and, and a growth-led trajectory. What would you say to green critiques about that being one of the key problems that needs to be addressed? Yeah. Could you square your manifesto with degrowth? Great. And Lydia. <clears throat> the notion of, um, of laboring class as an identity, which you seem to equate uh, with uh, the poor and repressed of the world. So I, I was wondering how, how inclusive this notion is uh, of laboring class and, and what it has to say for those who have never had jobs, for those who are always been out of the market, for those who have their own <coughs> work as um, self-employed or have small businesses. So where do you put them in a Good. So again, three big ones there on yeah. solidarity, um, production, and redistribution, and identity. Yeah. I mean, you can have a you can have a hot entire kind of a MA course or degree on each one of these questions. Yeah. Um, so I'll try and answer them as best I can. So I think Lydia and Melissa's questions kind of go together a little bit. And the multiplication of precarity, unemployed, and so on. I mean, and um, I mean, uh, there's, uh, it's quite fashionable now in development studies to talk about kind of surplus populations, as if they are outside and excluded from capitalism. Um, and I think, um, for me, the best analysis of the relationship between the employed and the unemployed is in Marx when he talks about the, uh, the, the employed proletariat, as he calls them, and the relative surplus population, the reserve army of labor. Um, and he breaks that reserve army down. He says, you know, there are those who are employed one day, uh, unemployed the other day. There are those who are moving from the agrarian sector into the industrial sector. And there are those who uh, really are almost never employed. Um, and so he's got at least three categories, if not four. Uh, and I th for me, that makes a lot more sense. I don't see how you can separate uh, the, 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 the huge numbers who don't have formal employment or employment of any kind from the dynamics of capitalism, from its rise in capital intensity and so on. Um, so for me, that makes more sense than any rival explanation. Marx's analysis of the reserve army of labor and its relational, relationality to the, uh, the army of labor, the labor uh, force. Um, so, so in that sense, they, they are all part of the labor force, um, whether they're employed or not, or whether under what types. Now, the question about self-employed, small businesses, and so on, are these part of the laboring class? Well, and like I mentioned uh, in the uh, thing, uh, some parts of the peasantry will be considered part of the laboring class. I mean, this is all based on real analysis. Uh, you have to go and do the analysis. In certain, in certain situations, uh, small business relations will be forms of disguised uh, proletarianization. I mean, you see someone, you know, people like De Soto, uh, Hernando de Soto talks about the uh, something of capital. His famous book that was uh, promoted by Thatcher and other people like that. They say, look at these, look at these people. They they just need property rights and a bit more capital, and they'll be able to make a lot from themselves. These are the kind of entrepreneurial class in emergence. Um, and the Tory party in this country has been talking about entrepreneurship for all those people who've been shoved out of the labour market and are buying and selling bits and pieces of scrap metal, for example, and making a tiny little existence. Entrepreneurs, well, not in a Schumpeterian sense and not in any real sense of these entrepreneurs. They are part of 
the labouring class in many ways. So one example is of this disguised wage labour is a lot of the, on the surface uh, of the uh, small business people who are selling things in the street, uh, you know, they rent, uh, they get advanced grants from uh, more powerful businessmen. They, they pay commission to uh, more powerful uh, people within a particular hierarchy. So in that sense, they could be described as disguised wage labour. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, it's a sociological, political economy analysis. But the point is, a lot of people who we would consider to be self-employed are not actually, don't belong in the middle-class self-employed category. Doesn't mean that they're automatically going to have a class solidarity, socialist, red flag-waving mentality. Not at all. But objectively, it doesn't make sense to me to put them into the middle-class self-employed category. Now, uh, this question about translocal solidarity and uh, the question of the kind of, uh, again, based on the proliferation of labouring class forms and struggles. I mean, one of my... Uh, OK, so one of the reasons labouring class uh, struggles have usually failed is because of lack of solidarity. Uh, one of the reasons for lack of solidarity is because there is not sufficient understanding, often by the political leadership, that actually our struggles are in common. And you can see that again and again. British jobs for British workers. I mean, Gordon Brown said that. British trade unions were saying that. What a disgusting, racist way to think about uh, the workforce and hum human security. But that is one way where the political leadership really discounts the idea of solidarity and militates against solidarity. Uh, you know, we are all part of the nation. We all have to tighten our belts together. I mean, that is really anti-solidarity way of thinking. So the whole point about the idea of labour-centred development as a political intervention is to try and say, look, diverse labouring classes, Diverse objectives, diverse struggles, they take many forms, many of which we can't recognise, many of them which make us feel uncomfortable, but if we do think of them and do the analysis and realise that they are part of this developmental process, then that creates a potential for us to link them and potentially even for uh, their le political leadership to link them and to create more solidarity. So there's a political intervention there which I think is quite important. Um, in terms of Pete's question about degrowth, I was going to engage with the degrowth. You know when you start writing a book, you have this, uh, you know, this is all the things I'm going to engage with and have this brilliant critique of, and then you don't because you can't. But, uh, I, I mean, the degrowth, I think you can have. <coughs> I think the concept of degrowth, on one hand, it points to the need to reduce resource use, uh, which is absolutely uh, resource waste especially. It was absolutely important. Uh, on the other hand, it also conjures up a world in which uh, people consume less. But I think uh, through redistribution and through rational use of resources, we can mostly, the people, the, the poor of the world, which is a majority, can consume better and they consume more whilst we are using less. In terms of, I mean, the amount of waste that goes into global food economy is just intense. A rational control of that food economy, a rational use of inputs, production process, consumption, would increase food consumption and reduce the massive environmental uh, damage that the global food economy impacts upon the environment, and so on. So, I mean, I'll go to that, into that a little bit. Uh, I mean, you know, using, you know, think about it. Uh, the, I mean, I started cycling to work. Uh, I recommend it. It makes you, uh, makes you a better person, gets you kind of up in the morning, you're feeling kind of good about it, um, and um, you feel more awake all day. Uh, that 
resource use, me cycling, is much less than me driving a car. And so if you rationally design uh, urban centers and so on, and the kind of work around things like cycling rather than using cars, you can have people having better lives, more healthy, much lower kind of eco economic impact upon the environment and so on. So in terms of degrowth, I think we definitely need to use uh, resources more rationally. Uh, we definitely need to reduce our impact on the environment. But at the same time, we should be aiming to increase uh, consumption of the poor in a way that uh, you know, it does eliminate poverty. And maybe that is a contradiction in degrowth thinking. Uh, but I'm sure they've dealt with that as well. So that's probably an area I have to engage with as well. Great, thank you. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Great, well, this, those of you who are... One more um, Just a seems to change stop the discussion, so good. Exactly, um, yes. In a way, uh, I mean, it's it, as you said at the beginning, it's kind of crazy that, we're, we're, that there's a novelty in bringing up labour as, as, a, as such an important aspect of development. I was like, duh. Um, I don't know how we got off that, exactly what happened there, but possibly because of its, um, you know, its radical political implications. Of course, the main problem here is that most states are run by elites that have absolutely no interest in your agenda. Um, I mean, we may complain in this country, but um, in lots of ways, the democracy continues to be representative in the sense that when you see a lot of MPs talk, you think, well, you know, I could know that person. Yeah. Whereas in a lot of countries, when you see political representatives talk, you know that you would never meet that person you know, in your sort of social circles. Yeah. Um, so most states are run by these elites. So how do we get them on board or off board, depending on how you see it? I'll ask, you, I'll ask you one more minute if I can. Those of you, how many students are here who are part of the ideas course? Okay. Keep this in mind because Monday we have the, we have the session on inequality. Um, and we'll be talking about the pathways to a more equal world. So Ben, when you talk about redistribution here, absolutely right, the figures show that, but what's the mechanism? What's the pathway to redistribution? Is that uh, seizing assets and handing it out to the poor? Is it radical taxation? How do we, how do, we do it? Uh, okay, so the, uh, there's one more question. One more, yeah. please. One, how, how would you account, in terms of people who have never worked but still counted as part of the labor force, what about people with disabilities, um, physical and mental, and then where do children fit into all of this? Because I guess one thing I'm wondering is this sort of assumes that um, there won't be systems of local power, right? Is, if everything is decentralized to the local level, how do you account for local systems? of power and people actually working in communities where even in a group of five, you can have vastly different inequalities or systems of oppression where someone can't speak up. Um, okay, maybe that's two. And then the third one, um, I can't help but wonder, does this assume that everyone is a rational actor and, and you won't run into the, um, the tragedy of the commons, right, where everyone will say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and ride my bike because that's the best thing to do and that everyone will sort of act in a rational way of limiting resource use. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's hard to imagine people being that, um, I guess, selfless or, you know, doing as much for the good. So ben, why don't you take those three and then wrap it up? Yeah, uh, all really 
difficult questions. I mean, yeah. I mean, so this last one about assumptions of rationality. Um, so as you realised in the last chapter, I said this is a thought experiment in the future. So I, I, I start based on an assumption. It's a thought experiment. Uh, for that kind of situation to happen, there has to be a much higher level of solidarity than has ever existed. Uh, so maybe it'll never happen, but maybe it will happen. And if it does happen, that solidarity, in a sense, may solve that problem. I think the whole process of us not being individuals and being uh, social animals comes through and develops uh, and helps us develop as both individuals and socially through these kind of uh, solidarity moments and collective uh, moments. Um, I mean, that's always a problem. Uh, another thing I say in the uh, chapter is, and this links to the other questions of mechanisms of distribution and getting rid of the elites, is that imagine this situation has happened, that you have a labouring-class seizure of power or conquest of power. I mean, first of all, you need to defend that power, but also the way to defend that power is through the extension and deepening of labouring-class solidarity and power. So all of these things, I'm talking about decentralisation, uh, so you're talking about... Uh, mechanisms of redistribution, I mean land reform, um, <clears throat> uh, basic income, using money in democratic ways, all of those mechanisms are designed to foster a broad solidarity participatory economy uh, and they will only work as far as they do so. Um, so, I mean, this is not a perfect answer to a question, but in a sense you can't. I mean, that's always a danger. And the more such a society becomes uh, hemmed in and uh, demobilised and undermined, the more that danger comes to the fore. The more that society is able to self-generate these institutions, these democ genuinely democratically institutions, the less that problem uh, arises.